Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshaw from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. What you're asking can't be done. This is a futile effort. If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It can't be done, obviously. This season of Actuality will focus on stories of things they said couldn't be done. And this week, our subject is the internet in space. Will it kill us all? (laughs) Let's hope not, (laughs) Sabri. But when we talk about space internet, what we were actually talking about is satellite internet. Satellites in space beaming down internet. And the whole point of that, the dream of that, is to connect everybody everywhere, as in, you know, rural Vermont, people on airplanes, people in the Namibian desert. But is space the place to actually get the world connected? Before we answer that question, we're going to start at the beginning, because the history of mass communications is a history of failure. That is the sound of Morse code, which we used to use on telegraph machines. And those were kind of like the Internet from 150 years ago. The first transatlantic telegraph cable was laid in 1858 between the U.S. and U.K. It carried a message from Queen Victoria. Naturally, and just as naturally, just a few weeks later, it broke. And no one laid another transatlantic cable for another six years because it was so difficult and expensive and failure-prone. Next up on the communication failure train, uh, besides my marriage, ha-ha, <laughs> I'm not married. Um, <laughs> fast forward to 1962, first commercial satellite. Uh, it was called Telstar. It went into orbit And it sent brief television signals back and forth between the U.S. and France, uh, clips of JFK speeches. Some may suggest that this would be more natural. O'Connell has not seen action since then. The music of Yves Montand. But after just 400 transmissions, it was undone. And why did it fail? Starfish Prime. Yes, that's right. Starfish Prime, just a few weeks before Telstar launched, the U.S. was doing something else that it used to do in space in the 1960s, and that was detonate thermonuclear bombs. They really need to bring that back. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Starfish Prime was actually the largest ever man-made nuclear explosion in space, and it raised the radioactivity level in the atmosphere so much that Telstar just couldn't handle it, and it fried just a few months after it was launched. Today we have 1,300 satellites up there doing all kinds of stuff thanks to a better handle on radiation shielding and also that we don't blow up nukes in space anymore. Not allowed. (laughs) Under the UN. But of course every generation has its own communications technology failure and Sabri, we are no different. Yep, the dream of the 90s was universal internet access beamed down from space from a bee swarm of internet satellites and that dream also failed. Teledesic spent uh, about two or three hundred million dollars on developing the project. That is Tim Farrar. He is a satellite internet consultant. He was part of that project. And Teledesic was a company that wanted to beam down internet from space, from satellites. People back in the 90s talked about, oh, every cell phone is going to have satellite connectivity in it because you're going to go outside coverage every so often. You want to be connected all the time. Well, turned out that wasn't such a good idea because it made the phones bigger, it was too expensive, uh, no one could be bothered. Right, so basically just as not everyone needed a Saved by the Bell satellite phone, 
not everyone needed satellites to connect. And on top of that, besides the expense of actually building and launching the satellites, it turned out that the actual receivers to connect to the network were going to be super expensive. Uh, it was going to cost thousands of dollars for these terminals, and uh, people could get access to a cable modem or a DSL router for a few hundred dollars. It became increasingly clear that Wall Street was going to sour on satellite. Indeed, Wall Street would sour on the satellite industries, and a wave of bankruptcies pretty much put a halt to the internet dreams of the 90s. Teledesic would survive until 2002. Its only satellite has already fallen out of orbit. Now, technically, though, don't we kind of have internet, satellite internet, like on the planes? This plane features Wi-Fi, and internet access will be available while we're above 10,000 feet. You are right, we do, but you may have noticed it's not that great. Yeah, it's actually horrible. (laughs) And that's because companies that provide satellite internet now rely on satellites that are really high up, 36,000 kilometers above the Earth. And it just takes too long for signals to travel that distance. Plus, putting a satellite up that high is very expensive. So you have to pay more for service that's not really that satisfying. And there's just a few of them, right? This is totally different from having like a giant league of internet satellites all around the globe. Precisely. And what that means is we still haven't hit that dream of the 90s. Internet access around the globe is still comparatively rare. 60% of people don't have access to the internet. It may not be shocking to you, but a lot of them are in developing countries. To get a sense of how that affects people and how that affects businesses, we called up uh, a friend in Ghana. Hi, Jifa? Yes, this is Jifa. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We called Jifa Akwa Amatan over Skype. She is the founder of Jifa.com, an e-commerce site in Ghana. She could totally use a satellite beaming down internet for her business, and so could other people in the developing world. And Tim asked Jifa about this. So Jifa, you run an e-commerce site in Ghana where only about 20% of the people have access to the internet. How does that work? Uh, e-commerce is fairly new in Ghana. The whole idea of shopping online generally is is fairly new um, because not not everybody still has internet. So it's it, most of the companies are actually in Accra, not all of Ghana. And you are in the capital, so do you have a like a four G connection? Yeah. So Accra, for example, we have Surfline. So Surfline is four G internet. So I can I can be more productive with my e-commerce shop because I'm in Accra. If I went, I can't I can't stay in Kumasi or Northern region for more than two days because I won't be able to work from there. What did you do before you had this type of Internet? Before I got Surfline, it was really difficult. Like even if I want to open a document to read, I would have to sit there and wait for it to load. And it would take me up to 20 minutes just sitting there for the document to load so I can read it. It just does something to you after a while. Like you can't function, you know, because this is something that's supposed to load like this. But because I don't have it, I can't. I have to just sit around and wait and wait and wait till it finally loads. So even if I was going to upload a new product on the site, it would take me all day to do just because I don't have 4G internet. And by the way, Surfline is very expensive, like about fifty-four dollars um, uh, for twenty gig. So that's expensive. You're in Ghana where your average university graduate makes about $100 a month. More than half of that will be going towards your internet bill alone. So your your side must be doing pretty well. 
<laughs> it's, for, it's, it's expensive for me too because I'm a starter. <laughs> so how do you think things would change in Ghana if there were affordable, fast internet? It's, it's important. I mean, if they, I'm sure there are other people in other parts of outside Accra who might have great ideas to do online, but they, you can't even think of that yet because you're trying to get basic things done. You're trying to learn more about the industry you want to get into, and that's proven to be more challenging, and it should be. You can find Jifa's site at dziffa.com. Uh, Jifa, thank you so much. Uh, com. Thank you. <laughs> dot com. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Have a great day, guys. All right. Bye. Thank you, too. So from talking to Jifa and looking at the numbers, it's clear that there is a market for this kind of internet access. Yeah, and this has given rise to a whole lot of creative ideas on how to accommodate schemes. Um, Google wants to launch a fleet of balloons that would beam down internet. Facebook has proposed solar-powered drones that would sort of perpetually fly around beaming down internet. And so it's probably not a huge surprise that a couple different companies are returning to Teledesic's plan for a global swarm of low-flying satellites to beam down broadband internet. And we talked to one of these entrepreneurs who is trying to bring this dream back. He actually points out, by the way, that incomplete internet access is not just limited to the developing world. Most people, we live in the cities and we all go, oh, we have internet. Everyone's got internet, right? No. (laughs) That's Greg Weiler, founder of OneWeb. We reached him at his office in Stewart, Florida, also known as part of Florida's Space Coast. Greg, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's really a, a pleasure to be here. If I right now can get cell phone service pretty much anywhere, I mean, I can even get some cell phone service, you know, in a wide range of developing countries, you mm-hmm. know, even in very remote areas. And I, and I can get, you know, internet on my cell phones there. Why yes. do we need satellite? The question is, why do you need more cell phone coverage? That, that's answered by, have you ever dropped a call? I have. You ever driven somewhere and said, hold on, uh, as I go over this hill, I'm going to lose the, the signal. I'll call you back. Yes. That little place, that little dip in the road, it's a dark spot where there's no coverage. If you put one of our terminals on the top of a light post, you would have coverage and you wouldn't drop a call. Hmm. And that's where OneWeb steps in. And do you think this will be cheaper than the cell companies just making new and better cell phone towers everywhere? Well, they put a cell phone tower in uh, Wisconsin and they have to get backhaul to it. So they have to run fiber 200 miles to a cell tower. Hmm. And at 5,000 dollars a mile. It's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and that same problem happens in schools around the world. When you go to schools in emerging markets, in order to bring connectivity, since there's no local infrastructure, it's a large-scale engineering effort. How do I point a microwave to another, t- put up a tower to an- and relay between microwaves to get to the school? And how do I power each of those towers by putting a generator at each of those towers? And how do I get somebody to drive around and fill it up with gas? Because I need to keep that generator running all the time in order to relay the internet to that school. So it turns out it's really expensive and hard to bring internet access to low population density areas. And it's a case where you can look at this math and say, rather than do all that physical work of moving the infrastructure and the legal work of getting the rights of way and everything, just put it all up in space. <laughs> and we can now afford to do that, or that that's now economic. Right. You, can, you can now take a small antenna, drive out to the cell tower, screw it on the side of the cell tower, and drive home. Wow. 
So tell us more about, I guess, your uh, consumers, the market you see for OneWeb. So schools and education applications are really dear to our heart. And if you think about a school in an emerging market, you need to have a small terminal that can be installed by a high school-aged girl with no tools, a terminal that will require uh, no instructions, and can be solar-powered because most of the schools have um, limited, if any, power at all. So that terminal then has to collect the internet and, and relay out to the internet information and then send it out to the school and to the, and to the kids in the school on laptops and tablets via Wi-Fi or LTE. And at the same time, you guys have investors like Qualcomm, you have investors like Airbus, you have big investors that I presume are putting money in not just to give internet to a school in rural Zambia. What is in it for everyone else? We, we do pull on the heartstrings and we look at the social change and the impact, but also every company's got CFOs and accountants and, and, and IRRs that they have to meet. And if you look at OneWeb and its ability to bring connectivity into all over the world into so many locations, you can see the, the massive scale of the uh, revenue opportunities. So what's the hardest part of this project? So the chips, I would say, is the, are the hardest part because those... Terminals on the ground, on the roof of a school in Zambia, on the home of a resident in Iowa, on a train in India, those terminals are looking up at the satellites, and the satellites are constantly changing, just like you would be driving by cell phone towers. You drive by the cell phone towers, and the cell phone tower is stationary. In this case, you're stationary, and the satellites are moving overhead. So uh, that relativistic motion and the a handover between the satellites are really the uh, the crux of the difficulty. Greg, one of maybe your more surprising investors uh, compared to all the big aerospace companies is Coca-Cola. Uh, what brings them to the table uh, for satellite internet? It's not necessarily about satellite internet that brought them to the table. It's the mission to bring internet access and enable it into rural communities around the world. Coca-Cola is the world's largest distribution company, if you think about it. They've been building out distribution sites for the past 125 years. They have well over 25 million locations around the world. What island or location have you gotten to that you couldn't find a Coke? Those resellers can also become OneWeb distributors at some point. In other words, we could put a terminal or the telecom operator could put a terminal on a reseller, and that reseller of Coca-Cola would also be able to provide internet. Greg, a lot of people look at OneWeb's plan and see echoes of Teledesic in the 90s and these failed ideas for satellite constellations. What's changed since then that makes you think this is a viable business? So much has changed, but if we can kind of boil down the change, we can look at semiconductors have got to the point where they can be small and efficient, where historically you needed tubes and lots of equipment to make something work. Today, you can put it all into a chip the size of you know, one centimeter square. So basically, you're resurrecting this dream because the technology is cheaper, smaller, faster, better. Well, good luck, Greg, and thanks. Thank you for having me. So Greg Weiler's company, OneWeb, isn't the only one racing to make satellite internet a reality. SpaceX, Elon Musk's rocket company, has a similar scheme to put hundreds of satellites in low Earth orbit and thus provide internet access. They've been keeping it under wraps um, and wouldn't comment for us on the record, but Elon Musk was recorded talking about the project at the opening of a satellite facility in Seattle. The focus is going to be on creating a global communication system. In the long term, it would be like rebuilding the internet in space. 
And Greg actually briefly worked with SpaceX on their plan before going into Found One Web. So there's a little bit of history there, possibly actually some bad blood from the sounds of it, according to industry sources. It gets complicated, but the rivalry between these two companies comes down to sharing the radio frequencies they'll need to beam internet down from space. Both companies are racing to get their satellites up in the next few years, and then their lawyers will engage in a battle royale to see if they have to share spectrum. One way or another, we are going to see a very solid stab at space internet in the next few years. Um, the ironic thing, given that OneWeb and SpaceX are competitors, is that OneWeb might need to hire SpaceX uh, to get its satellites up there since SpaceX has the cheapest rocket launches. Awkward. So, Tim, what have we learned? Haters going to hate. <laughs> and I'll tell you, when uh, OneWeb and Weiler announced their plan last year, the reaction wasn't always super positive. In the spirit of the they-said-it-couldn't-be-done season two of Actuality, we can turn to Tom Choi, the CEO of Asia Broadcast Satellite, who said at the time, I don't think a press release about some rehashed 20-year-old tried-and-failed idea will mean the new era for satellite communications. Ouch, someone's beaming down internet shade. <laughs> and it just gets at the scale of this undertaking that, that Weiler and SpaceX and, and other folks are working on to really change the paradigm of satellite internet with these small, swarming, low-Earth orbit satellites. But have they learned from the mistakes of the past? Sounds like they have. A, the technology is cheaper. B, the market is better defined. They're not going after everybody. They're going after, you know, trying to fill in basically the gaps, the places where Internet has not penetrated. Exactly. And I think it's that scaling back of ambitions that Tim Farrar describes that makes this believable as a business plan. People who think this is going to be something where everyone is going to be connected via satellite are always going to be disappointed. This is not about uh, having to uh, connect 100 million or a billion people via satellite. It's about how do you reach uh, a few million people in the developed countries? How do you reach uh, uh, the last uh, 5 or 10% in the developing world? And on those terms, it can succeed. It can succeed if they can launch and operate 800 satellites. Which is... Two-thirds as many satellites as there are currently in the sky, in total, in space. Hey, this isn't an episode, and this isn't a season about small challenges. That is all the time that we have arbitrarily chosen to have. (laughs) (laughs) Actuality is a joint production of... Quartz and Marketplace. Please visit our respective websites at marketplace.org and qz.com. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, In particular, we are working on an upcoming episode on workplace surveillance. So we would love to get your workplace surveillance stories. Stories of being watched at work, of having your data used. What's it done for you? What's it done for your boss? Um, You can hit us up on Twitter at ActualityPod or email us at mpqz.com at marketplace.org. So thanks to our tenacious producer, Claire Tennisketter, and thanks to our colleagues, Satara Navis in Los Angeles, Deirdre Depke here in New York, and our engineer, Jake Gorski. See you next time. 